of, of, of metaphysical definitions. It says that we mainly see the Bible as a recital of what has taken place in the consciousness of man, of the results of his working either intelligently with the law or unintelligently with it. So metaphysically then, the Bible is a tool that provides insight into being this cooperative component to the greater good in our lives today. Why? If an application of spiritual principle toward a positive and happy outcome worked in the time of Abraham, worked in the time of Jesus, it will work today through us, much like two plus two is four, then and now. If an application of the same principle or law that brought about a not-so-happy outcome worked then, the cause-effect aspect of it will work now in our lives, that I just said. So, how does Unity view the creation story that is recorded, of course, in Genesis 1 and 2? Understanding that this was a narrative written about halfway through the time frame within which the entire Old Testament was experienced and recorded. It was the effort on behalf of someone, and we don't know who, someone to answer questions about the origins of man or how in the hell all this came to be in the world, you know? <laughs> Unity views it as an allegory and not an actual seven, 24-hour period reference of time that culminated in the creation of man and then uh, from the body of Adam, the first woman or Eve. This, as it has been over the past two, this would be an entire lesson, of course, in itself, and down the trail, I'm sure it will again. But Genesis 1 speaks to the sequential steps, metaphysically understood, that take place as an idea is given form, shape, and substance, but not yet finding expression tangibly in our lives. For it states in Genesis 1 that there was no man to till the soil. In other words, it hadn't happened yet outwardly. So at this point, as found in the first chapter of Genesis, the unfolding process is yet in mind, and it is in process becoming part of consciousness. Genesis 2 alludes to the actual emergence of the idea into manifest form. In the allegory, the emergence of Adam and Eve. Uh, and metaphysically translated into our lives today, the emergence of any goal, of any dream, of any plan that was first held in mind. That notwithstanding, was Adam made out of the dust of the earth and Eve formed from one of Adam's ribs? Doubtful, for even biblically Adam and Eve were not the first man and woman. As we are told, their offspring, Cain and Abel, went forth and found wives. Um, was the earth created in seven 24-hour days? A nice story that now gave to scientifically unsophisticated people who could probably not even count very far something with which they could identify. For everyone would probably be able to count at least as seven and have three fingers left. Today, that logic is a little humorous. Did man come from the primates? No, because there are still varieties of primates among us. From a galaxy far away, maybe a logical answer as good as any. Evolution, I don't have a challenge with that as 
A possible answer is the universe itself is unfolding and evolving, but the literal story of the dust of the earth and a spare rib, I wonder if that's where that all came from, as a spare rib that Adam wasn't using, but that really doesn't fly. But does it matter? We're here, we're now. Then within unity, continuing, what is believed and taught about the atonement? Much of what can be called traditional Christianity, not all, much, some at least, um, they approach this subject from what I believe in my own prejudice to be a flawed premise, a backward premise based on a God created in the image, likeness, and temperament of man, not man created in the image, likeness of God. So another leg of this three-legged belief, then, that we find within the concept of atonement is original sin. Now, based on what? Well, to me, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to take things apart within my own logic. My logic may not be your logic, but it's how I view things. It's how I get to what I believe to be at the center of what I really believe. So, based on the literal understanding of the dastardly action of Eve, as she convinced Adam to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So, we see a whole theology um, that isn't too solid, based on a story that was never a literal happening in the first place. Yet now, leaving us with the belief that somehow, collective humankind, we've really ticked off God, who never got over it, <laughs> until blood was spilled via his only son sent to atone for Eve's shameful act. Sort of strains at your sensitivities, doesn't it? Yet, this makes perfect sense for many, many people. But, folks, it ain't true. The nature of God is omnipresent love. Hence, unity teaches that the theology based on the garden and original sin is totally flawed. You were not born tainted with original sin, but you were born into this life experience, into all the others that preceded it and all the others that are yet to come with original virtue. Hence, you do not need to atone for anything. And very much attached to this point of unity's teaching is the subject of salvation and the question asked by many, do you need to be saved? The answer, of course not, for you have never been lost. Remember, Jesus, our elder brother, wasn't sent by God to die. Just imagine what this would say about the God that we seek to more deeply understand. He, Jesus, self-assumed, assumed the role of teacher of spiritual principle, and his passing into non-physical was self-orchestrated so as to indelibly leave the message, still teacher, of the power of life being greater than anything that humankind can do. Then, to teach and believe, I will also include infant christening here in the same area. In the many places and belief structures, it has to do with something that is again predicated upon what I think to be the illusion of original sin. 
For now, it isn't good enough that Jesus, we are told, died for your sins to satisfy a dubious God idea that we say never existed in the first place, but now, so as to kind of administer the coup de grace on any last vestige of original sin, you have to be baptized by someone who is obviously recognized by God as capable of performing this action. So by total immersion or sprinkling, and you better get that right, for some believe that God only acknowledges one of the two, then unless you really commit some highness something, you will probably go to a heavenly place. Is it wrong to get baptized? Of course not. But if it is based on the idea why you are doing it of an angry, vindictive God, then this erroneous God idea will continue to live within us and not serve us in our journey. If it is based on simply a desire to use it as a symbol of commitment to a deeper understanding of our spiritual journey, then that is wonderful. So if a christening for an infant, we will tell the parents that this is done more for you than it is for your child who bears the image of the original virtue. If an adult comes to us, as they have over the years, and wants to be baptized, we will supply the experience, but not until we fully explain our understanding of the event. Not a God of anger, no original sin, just an original blessing, again, consciously, simply revisited. Well, you might say to me, well, wasn't Jesus baptized? Yeah, of course, if the scripture came down through multiple translations is correct. In his time, it was a Jewish tradition that at the age of 30, baptism marked a man's entrance into social acceptance as a voice to be heard. It can be loosely equated with someone turning 18 when he or she is now legally an adult and self-responsible. See, I cannot believe that Jesus' understanding was of an angry and vindictive God or that he needed to wash away any sin of Adam or Eve. What about unity and, and, and politics? Have you ever been in a church setting where politics was mentioned? It has been asked of us just this past week, how do we view what is happening on our southern border with the children crossing into our country? Well, you don't come to unity to hear how you should vote or hear politically, or I should say political innuendos interlaced with what we are saying. You are here to be exposed to our understanding of spiritual principle and how you can take this into the innermost workings of your life to create better, good, best. We just say when it comes to voting, you say, please vote. Not for whom? The children flooding into our nation. We would simply say, care, and then allow yet caring to be the basis for prayerfully sending your blessing to the entire experience. Now, if you are led to some kind of action, then that is yours to do, but to then not use that guidance for you to do something as a template that needing assistance. We, what does unity teach about the Holy Spirit? Well, we do not understand God to be trisected as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We understand the reference to the Holy Spirit to speak to the action of the 
essence of pure being or spirit which is always holy moving through our moments of heightened receptivity. Remember the words used depending on the translation that speak to the comforter or the Holy Spirit was the best descriptive choices that was then available to the writer. And further remember that each then was retranslated many times. So whenever we are consciously in tune with the flow of the essence of pure being moving through us as us, we are having a Holy Spirit experience. Why? We are that spirit. And with this inner tether, we have always been holy. When you are tuned in to the movement of God energy through you as you, you are the voice for what can be called the Holy Spirit in that moment, which almost always is something self-contained and self-directed within your life and who and what you are. And then another subject, do you know, and I'm sure many of you do, that scripture has references to it, but it is stated as a matter of fact. In Matthew, Jesus' words, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you would accept it, he is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Later in Matthew, and his disciples came to him. Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? But I say to you, Elijah has already come, and they did not know him. Then the disciples understood that what he had told them was about John the Baptist. Also in Matthew, he, Jesus, came into the country of Caesarea Philippi and asked his disciples, saying, Who do men, what do men say concerning me, that I am merely the Son of Man? And they say, Well, there are people who say that you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then, and this is important, I believe, not ridiculing them by saying, well, you know, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard from anybody. Not ridiculing him, Jesus went on to the important question, who do you say that I am? And, of course, we know Simon Peter's answer. And then from the Gospel of John, one more, and as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from his mother's womb, and the disciple asked, teacher, who did sin, this man or his parents? Again, he didn't really answer the question, but he cut to the chase. And he said, neither, but that the works of God might be seen in him. I must do the works of him who sent me and the man's vision restored. Now, the point here is that it was obviously assumed of a previous life existence for the man because he was born blind, where the thinking of the day was he might have brought some sin with him into that life experience to manifest as, as, as loss of sight. Now, just speaking for me, Larry, to me, it isn't logical or reasonable that we are set adrift within a physical experience and given a quantified amount of time to live, only to then, at the end of that cycle, to either go to heaven where, as I like to say, one is sent to eternal lethargy or sentenced to go to Aho, where one is really 
bathed in the love of God as eternal punishment is experienced, or to disappear into nothingness. To me, it makes no sense. You know, this is not a vindictive universe, and everything is continually unfolding and getting better. So what then governs where and when we might return after we enter into non-physical? Consciousness is again at the core of that because we never lose that. We take that with us wherever we are. And as what some have said, there is a deep desire to always get back into three-dimensional form where all the action is to be found. Now, no amount of talking will make it true if it isn't. And no amount of unity in throughout the world just accept that they have been around before. I bet you we have people here, no, no show of hands, who have had a deja vu experience in life where they know that something was carried through, be it a place or be it an, uh, a personality or be it a relationship where something says, you know, this is familiar. And that is exactly what there is a part of memory within you. I know that I, that I have had a physical expression uh, somewhere in ancient Egypt, in biblical Palestine, in England, and certainly more and more and more. For to me, it is logical. So if there is truth in anything that unity understands to be spiritual principle, it is provable once we internalize the basic understanding that needs a foundation about the true nature of God, the true nature of generic man, and our connectivity with the flow of spirit through us, through us, as us. And this knowing leads us to the threshold of knowing, of knowing really, knowing, 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 that our life is our consciousness and expression, and that we are the creators of our own reality. We are the creators of our own destiny, because the energy that moves through you is the essence of God. There is none other. It is who you are. And 